Hello, everyone. Welcome to this Thursday's edition of Conversations with Our Priest. Tonight, we have the Reverend Lindsay Bueller from St. Bede's, who is also the director of the Julian of Norwich Center, and the Reverend Dr. Barbara Bobby Patterson, who is retired, but is also an assisting priest at St. Bede's. Mm -hmm. Lindsay received training in spiritual direction and various practices of prayer at the Jesus Center of Atlanta and training in centering prayer at Greenbow House of Prayer. She has trained in pastoral counseling and marriage and family therapy at Georgia Baptist Medical Center and was a founding member of the Episcopal Diocese of Atlanta's Commission for Spiritual Formation. Lindsay is a spiritual director, leads classes in contemplative prayer, as well as quiet days and retreats. She's a member of the Spiritual Directors International, ACPE, and is an associate of Greenbow House of Prayer. For 33 years, Lindsay has mentored an education for ministry group and has served as a supervisor to students at Emory University's Campbell School of Theology, leading them in supervised ministry and the contextual education program. For several years, she also served as a spiritual director and retreat leader for Covenant Colleagues, a program offered at one time by Candler School of Theology to support clergy women in their first 10 years of ministry. Lindsay has served on the staff of St. Bede since 1998, and she directs the Julian of Norwich Center through which she serves our diocese in the Ministry of Spiritual Direction. Bobby is retired from Emory University and is an assisting priest at Church of the Epiphany. She focused on the intersection of feminist theory, women's embodiment and body practices and Christian spiritual traditions. The significance of context and history drew her to interest and question of place and space environment and human and more than human interactions and thriving. Her writing and teaching in religion and ecology fostered partnerships with the environmental sense, excuse me, environmental sciences department and office of sustainability at Emory University. She practices and teaches Christian and Buddhist contemplative practices and has written a book entitled Building Resilience Through Contemplative Practice, a field manual for helping professionals and volunteers. She continues to emphasize integration of ideas, arts, and community-based and led, led thriving. She leads workshops on effective teaching and learning, including assessment strategies, emphasizing ethical decision-making, place, and civic engagement. We are so glad to have them here tonight to talk about resilience. Bobby, I believe you're going to lead us in an opening prayer and Lindsay will be doing our closing prayer this evening. And I wanna thank everyone for being here today. If you have any questions, please feel free to use the chat or we will leave the last 15 minutes open for questions from everyone. Oh. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Nora, for that lovely, lovely introduction. It's a real privilege to be here with you and with Lindsay, my longtime dear friend and neighbor. That's so much fun. Um, and Lindsay and I have decided tonight that we are going to open with a prayer form that's poetry. 
And so this opening prayer I have actually put in the chat and I will read it um, and then say just a word about it and then perhaps read it again. Um, it's called Following a Stream by David Wagner. Don't do it, the guidebook says, if you're lost. Then it goes on to talk about something else, taking the easy way out, which of course is what water does as a matter of course always, taking whatever turn the earth has told it to while and since it was born including flowing over the edge of a waterfall or simply disappearing underground for a long, dark time before it reappears as a spring so far away from where you thought you were and where you think you are. It might never occur to you to imagine where that could be as you go downhill. So David Wagoner is a writer from the Midwest who teaches at the University of Washington. And his poems are about the natural cycles of the earth and really about the experience of resilience that is already among us, with us in the very creation of God's heart and our lives. And the idea being that we have our kind of strategies, the guidebooks say, don't, if you're lost, accept the experience we have, and particularly in building resilience, is that going with what is occurring with an open-heartedness will lead us in a flow of the spirit like water, taking whatever turn it needs to take with the earth since it was born, flowing over a waterfall and going underground for a long dark time sometimes to arise as a spring we never imagined, we never could have placed. And all the while in the presence of the spirit, we're going downhill, it's learning to be with it. So that's an opening reflection for tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Bobby. You're welcome, Bobby. I first met Bobby in 1980 when I was a second year student at Kansas Theology at Emory. How can we be that old, Bob? <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> then Bobby um, led with Phyllis Rowe of a, a another person who was connected with Candler, a transformative class for me. It was entitled Women in Ministry, and Bobby led us in a guided meditation, having us picture ourselves as someone who was called upon to preside at a Eucharist. 
I was in seminary not knowing why I was there other than that I wanted to do the studies. And Bobby facilitated my picturing myself being at a table. So thank you, Bobby. She's been a long time teacher and friend in my life. So Bobby has written this wonderful, very important new book that I was wanting to hear her tell us more about. And thank you for joining us so that we can all be learning together what Bobby has been discovering over long decades of her work in the community, many communities. So her book looks like this. I always like to see what a book looks like. Building <laughs> resist resilience through contemplative practice. I work with individuals in small groups and we cover similar kinds of things to what Bobby is talking about in her book, but Bobby has done this work with whole communities. And so she's gonna walk us through what she's discovered in her experience and what she's presenting to us in this book. And then we'll, be, we'll all be in conversation with each other about what your experiences have been and any questions you may have. So Bobby. Yeah, oh, thank you. Oh my goodness, I can't even, I can't imagine that story. Can't, um, I don't remember it and what a beautiful thing too. It was a very mutual interweaving we were all doing in those days, a kind of communal empowerment, which I think is not unrelated to resilience. You know, one writes, I think one ends up writing a book because you don't have the answers. <laughs> and resilience was definitely a concept that was thrown around in my life for a long time. And I didn't really know what it meant. And especially in my work with community engagement, though I think actually the model of the book is applicable to our personal spiritual lives, to our relationships, to the whole, all the various levels of experience and living. Uh, adaptive resilience is pertinent. So you write what you need. What I think I grew up on about uh, the story I grew up with about resilience is something very simply said, like you either got resilience or you don't. If you have resilience, you just keep going no matter what. You have a determined sense that if you just put your shoulder to the plow, it will eventually turn the soil. And I spent a lot of my life kind of doing that, particularly in community engagement. And I knew in my heart and in my prayer life, my practice life, that that wasn't the experience I had. That instead of denying that there were breakdown phases in service, in prayer, in study, in relationships, I needed some sort of model that would help me see how resilience actually is part of a larger life cycle. And because I have worked in, 
in e ecology and ecosystem studies, I came upon this model called adaptive resilience theory, which is now 30 years old. The center is in Oslo. It's now being embraced by social scientists, political scientists, environmentalists. It is a complicated model because living systems are, including you and me. Um, but to say it very simply, Lindsay, just to begin, the idea is that life is moving through phases at all times. And they're not necessarily in order, but in the most simple form, there's a kind of phase of our experience that is generally stable. It's when the elements of what we're doing are kind of holding together. It's that yummy spot that feels safe and wow, now it's singing, now I've got it. But in fact, it will not last. Actually, a system that's continually stable eventually becomes weak and will fade away. So what happens after that stability phase often is there's some kind of jostle. There's some sort of breakdown or release and things as we knew it really change. Sometimes it feels like a full on collapse. And I had plenty of those in the service world where everything seems like it fell apart. And change can happen very rapidly and you can feel very emptied out by it. But adaptive resilience says, go into that rubble and look at what's there because within that collapse phase are now unlocked or released other kinds of opportunities or what I like to say, kindling and an ember still kind of creating heat and you can rebuild uh, the work you were doing, whether it's personal spiritual work, whether it's community service work. And that moves us into a next phase of kind of reorganizing our work or our way of thinking about our prayer so that we begin to innovate and renew, which also moves us into a next final phase of actually exploiting resources we never even thought about, like COVID has made Zoom a resource we're all kind of sick of, but it does give us a way to connect. And you had to innovate to do that. You had to bring in something you hadn't used before. And then you'll get back into a kind of stable spot. And this very simple way of saying stability, collapse or breakdown, reorganization, exploitation in the nicest of ways bringing in new things. That's adaptive resilience. It means our spiritual lives, our service lives are always transitioning. They're always changing. So that's the basic different story. To break down is okay. When it's not climate change related, a forest fire is the only way certain seeds will ever get enough heat to pop open. It's a healthy collapse phase. So that's adaptive resilience. One thing I love about your book, Bobby, is that you tell so many stories to walk us through what your 
wanting us to be learning about how burnout and things falling apart is to be embraced and welcomed as part of the cycle. I was just wondering if you have a story or two that you would want to share and and walk us through this to put some flesh on it for everybody. Absolutely, absolutely. So the chapters really are, the there's a chapter kind of saying, let's think about uh, resilience differently. And contemplative practices are wonderful tools and skills for being with adaptive resilience. And we can talk about that later in a little more. But the, the next chapter, the first chapter is about the idea of willingness and willfulness. I talk about contemplative principles like, you know, I think I always tend to will my way through something instead of willingly opening to, wow, things are not working. So one of my early experiences with adaptive resilience that I didn't understand was I was working as a young, young, not yet ordained priest in the cathedral church. And um, I was in charge of all things urban ministry, which is what I had predominantly trained in, in divinity school. And I didn't have the pleasure of going to Candler. Um, and in that experience, uh, one day the secretary came to me very ruffled, very unhappy of the church. And she said, you must go to the front porch and you must go now because we have a new Eucharist here and you have to do something. And I went out through the cathedral to the front porch, which was massive, you can imagine. And there was a homeless man I knew well, James. And James was a very creative man. And James had somehow, over a couple of days, accumulated furniture, books, china, and he created a home on the front steps, front porch of the cathedral. He had a living room, he had a dining room, he had library area, he had his bedroom. It sounds cunning. But when you don't have resilience, I completely collapsed. I was furious at him, furious that he had done it. And I just exploded and said, James, are you out of your mind? What have you done? We have a new Eucharist in 20 minutes. You have to get this all out of here now. And he was a man who was quite able to flex as many homeless people are. And he calmed me down until I burst into tears, feeling confused and angry. I knew that my rage at James was because my city wasn't ready to really deal creatively with our homeless population. We just wished they would go away. There was no structural place for them to go. And James was a person who took opportunities to make his life rich. And when I said, you've got to get all this stuff and I'm using terrible language at him, he just smiled. He pulled a grocery cart out of somewhere. We started cleaning off the front porch and People began coming to church and they said lovely things like, oh, are we having a rummage sale? I can bring some things else. And I, you know, James and I just kept working. 
But what the chapter talks about is I wanted to will my way through urban ministry. I wasn't willing to be with the pain, the difficulty James faced, the frustration I faced. I was trying to make it hold together in a stable way that homeless ministries never can. And he kind of cracked that open like a collapse or like that seed that a fire opens. And I had to look at my own inability to spend reflective time with my anger, with my fear. And the chapter gives some examples of how you can begin to journal some of those experiences you think are not okay. And to begin to, to recognize how many factors are at play and try to discern which factors are most important to you so that you can actually move into the collapse and then begin to bring in some resources you never thought about. So that's, that's a, first, a first scene. Thank you. And um, you write beautifully about the practice waiting in the heart Yes. Um, people from St. Bede's um, have, we've practiced together welcoming prayer, which is just about the same thing as, yeah. as waiting in the heart. Yeah. I just was thinking it might be such a gift to offer that to us, that practice to us. Yeah. Walk us through it. Yeah. Um, explain that to us. Yeah. Um, you know, Lindsay, I think waiting in the heart is such an important and powerful kind of opportunity for that settling enough to kind of bring ourselves back to the openness of what is possible now, of learning to kind of, so waiting in the heart for, for me in these practices has been the opportunity to notice that you are not able to quite settle into the conflict, the tensions, the pain that is around you. And that by learning to wait in the heart, in many ways we do, Howard Thurman has that wonderful phrase of, I want to give a prayer that is all about the open hand. Help me make my actions better. Help me do something to either fix this or throw it away or try to just change my view of it. But instead of open hand prayer, he talks about an opening of the heart where we learn to just sit and trust that if we allow a sense of heartfelt self-care for ourselves, God will become present in that moment and we can begin to rest enough in the rubble that it's not so overwhelming and so frightening, but we can begin to even understand that it's actually in this open-hearted space with the difficulty that we begin to hear the Spirit's prompting of empathy for ourselves, empathy for others, and the kind of creative waiting that opens us up to rethinking, refeeling. It's very embodied, and I think that's one of the messages of the book, 
the open heart practice helps us really move into our incarnate selves, not just the thinking mind, but to be with the heart as it's beginning to listen and reimagine. And I'd be interested to know at St. Bede's what you all have experienced and what you've been uh, learning from this practice of opening the heart. Well, we, we've been practicing, uh, many of us, welcoming prayer, um, which was um, the way that a colleague of Thomas Keating's talked about a similar form of prayer, Mary Merzowski. Yes. And, and in welcoming prayer, the, at the beginning of it, we notice all these feelings that are <laughs> wrote just yeah, got us caught yeah. in them and not just the feelings that we're having in our heart, but how they're uh, experiencing them in our body. Yes. Um, and then the second step is sitting with these feelings with compassion and empathy. Yes, yes, yes. And then the last part of welcoming prayer is to help me let go of trying to change this situation, change myself, fix anything, to simply be here with God's compassion and company. Right, that's exactly right. And that can be, I think one of the things I learned by writing this book is that these practices enrich with repetition. Uh -huh. that it's um, possible to be using a kind of practice of an opening heart in all kinds of settings, uh, whether it's a service setting that's distressing or whether it's our own kind of spiritual work to learn to practice, if you will, hearing or learning with our body's sense of, oh, there's that familiar part of me kind of right in my solar plexus that begins to tighten when I think something's got to be done here. Something's got to be either staved off or quickly fixed to begin to notice there's that tension in my solar plexus and to become more familiar with it more open-hearted toward it and to allow it to begin, if you will. There's a kind of Tibetan wonderful phrase for this. It's called the handshake practice, just to kind of shake hands with that tight solar plexus. Or in our Christian traditions to see there is grace in all things and God's presence is with us and able to embrace that tension. And the more I come to know it, the more it becomes a familiar space that I can begin to allow the spirit to move me in and help me change, help me open to the change that's already happened. I think just one other quick word I think matters here a little bit too, Lindsay, is to recognize um, in the African contemplative traditions of Christianity, the Desert Mothers and Fathers, they make a wonderful distinction. And you're so expert at this with your knowledge of spiritual direction and our different temperaments. 
Um, but that, you know, they talk about, the desert mothers and fathers talk about that practice of the heart and opening the heart may show up differently for many of us because we are people of different temperaments. We have different kind of built-in aspects of how we come into and with the world. And there are incarnate gift of God. So I love to, I say playfully in the book, my husband's temperament is in the morning, in the kitchen, there is never enough room for two people. It would not matter how big the kitchen is. It's simply, his temperament is two people cannot be in the same kitchen first thing in the morning. That's, that's a gift. That's who he is. His disposition is he can either say to me, Barbara, get out of the kitchen, please. He calls me Barbara. Or, darling, it's me in the kitchen. Can you help me by leaving? This position is how we take the open heart into a daily practice. And that sense of temperament is really honoring that the way we come at an open heart will not look the same. So in your practice group, people will experience that differently. And I love that about adaptive resilience. It's not expecting us to be lockstep kind of Christians. Our stories really matter. Our temperaments really matter. I love how you talk about that when you were on your trek in 2013 with a group of women. Yeah. Helpful part of the book where you explain that difference between temperament and disposition. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if you want to say anything about that now or. No, I'll be happy to. And how we, you know, we move into so much of our lives and our spiritual lives with a great sense of adventure and a great sense of calling. And that is such a beautiful thing. And I think what I've learned with adaptive resilience is that that image of my calling can sometimes get stuck in that stable phase. And so I am pretty much an outdoor person and I, um, I'm pretty active. And so doing the physical work of the trek in Nepal, in the kingdom of Mustang, was not particularly a challenge except for my temperament, which was I am not used to nine hours of walking day after day after day, not quite clear where the destination was, how long it was gonna take us. Um, I wanted to know more about why we had to walk so long every day. And I got incredibly irritable and I am a real sniper when I'm irritable, which means I do that thing of asking a, a kind of sugar-coated question like, oh, we've already been on the trail for what now? 25 hours? Are we ever going to get to dinner or are we just <laughs> And that sense of finally learning to let go to this is what it is to trek this is not this is a new experience for you this is where your temperament gets to be acknowledged 
but use your dispositional skills to try to be with who you are in the context you're in, which is we're trekking now, Bobby, and we have a lot of miles to cover, and we're going to have to go lots of hours every day. And the what was really beautiful was that the Sherpas are used to cranky, irritable women like me. <laughs> and they just would say, oh, have some more tea, Bobby. Oh, here's some more cookies, Bobby. A way of encouraging me forward. And I think what we learn with resilience and what you do at St. Bart's is we create community that we help each other move through that difficult time where we then begin to reorganize to, okay, now I'm on a trek and this is what we're doing and being generous with each other. And community is such a help, such a help. Is that, is that the ballpark you're looking for? Yes, thank you. That's great, yeah, it was a great adventure. Wonderful. Hopefully, I think too, you know, as we, I think another dimension of adapting and in a resilient way is you begin to learn what helps you mediate the instability you're feeling. Because our, yeah, our walk with God, our walk on a long trek is always going to be unstable. It's got moments of stability, moments of instability. And resilience is the thing that kind of helps us stay with whatever's coming. And I think uh, what I learned on the trek and what the book is suggesting is that the more we can practice paying attention to, oh, this is a time I could begin to let go of what I think this trek needs to be. Or I can let go in my work at Grady with suicide attempters and a protocol of a compassion meditation, we had a protocol. This is how you teach compassion meditation. But the patients who all had attempted suicide very quickly let us know, your map doesn't work for us. And so what adaptive resilience does is say, boy, my temperament wants to hold on. I've got the map, let's follow the map. But they're saying, we need to bushwhack some here. It's not working for us. And learning to go with that is something, dis my disposition to stretching my temperament, skills around that, which the contemplative practices are giving us, that sense of noticing in my body, boy, I'm upset about this. Boy, I'm holding on. And then learning to breathe into that and say, they want to do walking meditation in Grady hallways. That can't work. Except it did. Except it did. And Bobby, um, I'm so glad you mentioned that because a lot of people right now who would normally practice centering prayer every day and or um, Lectio Divina are having difficulty with that, but a walking meditation seems to be what is manageable in this season with the pandemic. So could you say just a little bit more about what happened with that 
wonderful time of walking the hallways of Grady with the group, with the walking meditation. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think both early in the book and the later chapters get more complicated about how much adaptive resilience is being pressed. But even in the first chapter, when my own kind of world, I felt like, I can I really do service with others? I'm not sure I have that capacity. I had a couple of really bad experiences. And in that pain, I just went out into the world and walked in a walking meditation, which I had learned at the Society of St. John the Evangelist uh, Contemplative Community in Cambridge, where I was in school, Cambridge Mass. And just to walk and allow myself to be in a world where children were playing, the sky was still up, the ground was still there, the Charles River was still there, when I felt everything was falling apart, was so comforting, the incarnate presence of God. And at Grady, they simply, they, the, the community just said in this weekly group, we, we can't sit in our chairs, our anxiety is too high, our depression is. So when you walk the halls at Grady, there are linen carts going by, there are elevators going up and down, there are doctors talking to each other, staff talking to each other. But at Grady, there's a wonderful capacity to just do what you're doing. And I was very, I was very shocked that we could find a, a hallway that had maybe a little less traffic. And the community of us, learn to first just stand and ground ourselves on the floor of a Grady Hall and then just begin to walk, feeling our feet grounding, our body dropping down into our feet, our breath becoming associated with walking. And immediately the group members would say, even after a five minute walk would say, my mind is calmer my mind is clearer. Then we began to use the tools of the hall. Listen for the sounds, the Xerox, the elevator, the talking staff. We are on the site floor, so there's usually a few slightly crazy people talking. So just use whatever sounds you have in your real world as a grounding invitation to know this is incarnate life. This is your body, your heart, your mind in God, in compassion. And you can be here for them to be present with themselves in a moment. And the next moment was a way they began to believe life was worth living. And any time we would, they did, we did move into, as you know, in the book, some sitting meditations, but some days I would come to group and they would say, nope, nope, we have to walk today. Anything else you remember, Lindsay, or am I? Oh, no, that's, that's great. Yeah. I, I, I know many people who, after what happened last Wednesday in the Capitol, Yes. have been finding that it's too hard to sit still yes. because of the anxiety, yes. but have been 
finding places to walk and pay attention to the birds singing all around and the children. And um, today it was a blue sky, the other day it was raining, yes. but to feel the wind and be in the body, yes. it's, it helps restore, um, helps us find again that place of restfulness and calm. Absolutely, a kind of presence. In mm -hmm. now. I think for many of us, and certainly for members of that group, but for me too, there is so much that I begin to extrapolate. And when I'm just sitting, then my mind can really get going. And then I begin to, I begin to make a plan for the inauguration. <laughs> what will happen? Then? Where should I be? What should I be doing? But the, the gentle pace of the incarnate world, the created world and walking in it and experiencing present moment. That's one of the great invitations of walking meditation and just grounding as you keep saying, just letting the body, that incarnate life of Christ is so critical because my mind is very busy. Our, the neuroscientists are teaching us, you know, that the mind is born, it is evolutionarily built to scan. What's next? Who's coming? Where's the tiger? What about the inauguration? That's what it's built to do and that there's giftedness in that. But the embodied self is a beautiful partner with the heart for saying, let's be here now, right here with those birds, with that blue sky with the children. And sometimes I find that in walking meditation, I can be with my fear, mm -hmm. but I can keep moving forward. I feel my chest tighten or my stomach tighten, shoulders tighten. And I say, oh, okay, I'm carrying a lot of feeling scared. Okay keep, let's keep walking, let's keep walking. And then a bird will chirp or a child will, will um, laugh or scream at her mother. <laughs> and it just helps us stay in the present moment where God is always present. Mm -hmm. I was thinking it might be good. Um, we just have another minute or two before we um, have questions just to say even um, again with emphasis that burnout and things falling apart is normal. Mm. Normal. Yeah. Normal. Change is part of the great gift of our creator. Change is always occurring and change means we'll sometimes feel like it's all falling apart. And we know in contemplative, uh, there's, the, there's a story in the book um, about the young man who fights his way across that Egyptian desert and his sandals are filled. And by the time he finds the great old teacher, he says, what do you do all day out here? And the teacher says, we get up and fall down. We get up and fall down. And that is, our life incarnate is we are, change is happening, suffering is happening. And when it does, 
this is a pattern in the contemplative traditions, don't deny it, be with it. And allow it to teach, to speak, and allow God to remind us of God's incredible love for us and our the way that fosters empathy and affection in us for ourselves and for others. That's the last thing, Lindsay, I'll just say quickly. The, the, the Grady group came up with this amazing metaphor. They called it two-footed steadiness, which was self-care and other care. And when you walk, you are embodying two-footed steadiness which I think is core to the Christian gospel, that God is deeply caring about each of us and about our interrelationships with all beings. So self-care and other care, two-footed steadiness. Two-footed steadiness. I think right. we're going to open up for questions. Is there anyone who would like to ask Lindsay or Bobby a question? Well, I can jump in. All right, Nora. Um, I am one of those people that like to power through when something gets difficult. Is there, from what I hear you saying, that's not always the best option. How do you calm yourself to get through to the ability to step back and not power through, but wait? Lindsay, do you want to say a word to that? Or I'm happy to say something. Well, you know, I, um, Nora, I think one of, the, one of the gifts of this whole approach adaptive, contemplative, is it takes so seriously the good news if you begin to notice, hey, I'm powering through <laughs> because I can just power through. And, you know, it's nice if you have someone in your life, like my spouse, who will, he's happy to say to me, Hey, you're powering through and it's on my territory. <laughs> but many of us are a little too, too nice to do that. So these practices also help us to learn, hey, I'm powering through. And that is such an important moment that we might discount because we think what we're really supposed to do is get to the fix. But the really resilient work is, wow, I can begin to notice when I'm powering through, well, this is Joe's phrase is, oh, 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 here's the Harvard voice. I change how I talk. <laughs> That's a power through signal for me. Oh. I'm talking faster. I have erased as much of my Southern accent as I can. You know, I, I begin to recognize, oh, my shoulders are tense. I'm powering through. Oh, my blood pressure is, I, I, I feel my heart. I'm 
powering through. It's so much more about being in the moment of learning. Wow, this is how I kind of release, break apart from the stability I love holding on to. I start powering through. That lets me know things aren't going the way I hope. And what a gift if you could know you're powering through. So don't discount that when you begin to recognize empowering through. And then, as you know, Lindsay was saying, begin to open your heart to, wow, this is what powering through can feel like held in the arms of the spirit. You are just beautiful when you power through or don't power through. But you will find a little more freedom and a little more options if you can kind of give yourself some other ways of thinking about responding to this situation. I've got some ideas. Does that, Nora, does that make sense? That does make sense. That makes a lot of sense. One Anything thing else? that helps me is to, uh, that saying, you can't push the river. <laughs> And that we're to learn about flowing like the water, like in that beautiful David Wagner poem. Yes. Because um, we all carry these messages um, from the culture and or from our family of origin about trying to do things just right and perfectly and there's a schedule and, and we've got to keep on no matter what. And it's such a gift when I can recognize, gosh, you know what? I'm hurting myself. This is hurting me to move about in the world this way. Um, so if there's a way to recognize the messages underneath that somehow I think I'm not enough and that it's, it's not okay to move at the pace that actually fits with my soul, and my heart, and my being, and my body, um, the way that God created me to move about in the world. Right. Does anyone else have any questions? Uh, yes. What, what were those two words that you used about, is it willingness or willfulness? Yes. Uh -huh. well, what were they? Yeah. Well, each chapter, the stories in each chapter um, are kind of, I, I, I use in the book what I call principles. Mary, uh, you know who you are. Um, so the, the principles of the book are these contemplative principles, like most of us try to will our way through something. Willfully, I do. I try to do this service to homeless people and James, get off this porch. I'm in a will. But the contemplative response, the incarnate response is, wow, James has done something I can't even fathom. He has built a home on the front porch of the cathedral. <laughs> and my secretary. I, I know that. My secretary is furious. I need to take charge of this. No, willingly. 
what can I do? So there's, and I just will name Mary, if you, you, you kind of- I just can't do this. I'll say the chapter, the next one is called taking in, not taking in. And this was in a social service center. And so it may, it's, it's a little bit of a flip. It's saying, I learned you don't have to take in anything a client brings to you. There was a, a man that came to our social service center who just kind of loved to nag people if they weren't going to be authentic with him. And I was trying to be a very good person with him, not authentic. And it's not surprising. He threw more stuff at me until I said to him, no more. I am not taking in what you are giving to me. This is a game. Can we be real people together? So that's the principle. And I learned that by feeling the panic every time in my body when he showed up, that I would need to be nice and do whatever he said and meet his needs. But, you know, I learned finally, he just pushed me enough that I said, yeah, you know what? I have healthy boundaries here. So every chapter has that kind of, the old way is, I'm going to willfully make this work. No, the new way, adaptive, resilient way is I'm going to willingly be with what's unfolding. The old way is, yeah, you can just dump on me all you want. I'm here to serve you. <laughs> the contemplative way is, wait, let's be in real relationship where I have some healthy boundaries. And, and it changed our lives. He and I became close. So every chapter has that kind of sense to it. To me, that is learning to say no at times. Right, France. Beautifully said. That is a holy word. That, is, that is very difficult to do. Especially as Lindsay was saying, if you're like me and you think, well, to be of Christ's way, I just give and give and give but we know that was not Christ's own behavior he retreated he took care he said no and you're absolutely right Francis adaptive resilience is knowing I I'm not going for this in my heart of hearts I need something else I need to, to keep checking in with our own heart and body and that's how we know I I can't do this and I need to say no. Beautiful, beautiful, very beautiful. Francis, thank you. That's exactly right. That can be a hard. Yeah. I think, excuse me. Yeah. Hey Carol. Hi, Lindsay. <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm very interested in getting this book and looking at it. But as I listen to you, especially your comments on willingness and willfulness, what I find is that even in family life, dealing with my young adult children, I think I'm willing because I have embraced having them and so on and so forth. But I try to be, well, I'm not aware of it, 
but I think I'm helping. I think I'm fixing. And what I'm doing on a lot of levels is creating a degree of chaos and distress and so on and so forth. And um, what I have started to learn of late is that yes, I can be a bit willful sometimes. It's counterproductive, but you know, old habits die hard. So, um, but what I find is that as I increasingly learn to um, relax into willingness and understand true that the Holy Spirit will in fact guide me and guide them and that they have the right as young adults to make, get some scraped knees and elbows so that they can learn and grow. So, yeah. Um, Carol, that's, yeah. that's so beautifully said. Uh, there's a chapter in the book and it was work we were doing in Bedford Pines mm. and the community of Bedford Pines mm -hmm. taught me um, this. Uh, the, the phrase in that chapter is not all up to me. Yeah. I had a kind of, it's all up to me. Yeah. We got to make this program for kids work. Yeah. And we're in charge. And, you know, what those community members in Bedford Pines taught me was, you know, it, it's not all up to you. Yeah. Um, the spirit, even this community who's lived here for decades, we know how this community works. Would you like to ask us? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and your, your children know what, they know what they're after. They do. And you say it may, and it may be scraped knees and you can say, oh, that's going to hurt. But it's not all up to you. No, it's not. And uh, Christ is so good at offering us the space to learn yeah. to let go and recognize absolutely yeah that is that sense of a uh, kind of not all up to me is um mm -hmm. i i do the 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 exercise in that chapter is i i just checking to make sure is a caring breath usually when i get in it's all up to me i'm not at lindsay said it so well i'm not really caring for myself yeah i'm kind of Caring for them, which means I've got to kind of stranglehold on them. <laughs> yeah, but so caring for myself helps that calm down. Yeah, well, yeah, it's because I was finding I was the one with the headache. Yeah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> fine. There goes mom. She's always trying to fix things. You know. So. I hate to bring this to a close, but it is about that time. Wow. Uh, next week, we are going to have the Venerable Carol Maddox from the Georgia Interfaith Public Policy Center mm -hmm. and the Reverend Jeffrey Smith from the Office of the Bishop of the Episcopal Church. Wow. They are going to discuss the role of deacons as advocates and advocacy leaders in the church. So that is going to be very exciting. Bobby and Lindsay, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you for giving us a springboard for resiliency. And um, Lindsay, if you will lead us out in prayer, we would greatly appreciate it. This is...
long prayer from Jan Richardson just to be talking about the self-compassion and God's compassion we're wanting to practice receiving. Beloved is where we begin. If you would enter into the wilderness, do not begin without a blessing. Do not leave without hearing who you are. Beloved, named by the one who has traveled this before you. Do not go without letting it echo in your ears. And if you find it is hard to let it into your heart, do not despair. That is what this journey is for. I cannot promise this blessing will free you from danger, from fear, from hunger or thirst, from the scorching of sun or the fall of the night. But I can tell you that on this path, there will be help. I can tell you that on this way, there will be rest. I can tell you that you will know the strange graces that come to our aid only on a road such as this, that fly to meet us, bearing comfort and strength, that come alongside us for no other cause than to lean themselves toward our ear and with their curious insistence, whisper our name, beloved, beloved, mm. beloved. Thank you all. So Thank you. Thank you everybody. Here, here. So good to see all of you. Thank we you. I wish I could give you all a hug. Ear <laughs> hug. Ear hug. We will have these poems on our website if you want them. And again, thank you all so very much for joining us. Have a blessed evening. Thank, thank you. you. Okay. Night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Take thank care. you.